Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China, or download our new and improved smartphone app, or just visit the website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. And while you're there, check out our new business news podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, for a weekly roundup of top stories from Caixin, China's authoritative source for business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the offices of Wilmer Hale in Washington, D.C., where I am joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of SubChina, who has promised in these very august settings to behave himself. <laughs> Please say hello to our listeners. Hey, how y'all doing? <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, uh, China's entry into the WTO in December 2001 was a true watershed. Uh, some see it uh, along with the permanent normal trade relationship that, that, that preceded it as colossal mistakes that unleashed a flood of Chinese goods onto the U.S. market and began the hollowing out of American manufacturing and, and end of job loss. Others, and I would certainly include myself in this camp, saw it as the beginning of the real integration of China into global systems, inaugurating a process that, while not without its costs, has, on balance, benefited pretty much all countries involved. This moved China really far forward on issues from human rights to rule of law to technology standards and intellectual property protection, of course, not far enough. But uh, in, in any way, in, in doing so, it has really helped make the world more prosperous and more secure. It was a, a major historical milestone, no matter how you slice it. Today, we have the genuine honor of speaking with the principal author of the agreement uh, at the heart of this watershed event, Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky, who served as the U.S. Trade Representative during the period 1997 to 2001 and was deeply involved in the process in the years before her appointment as USTR when she was Deputy USTR from 1993 to 97. No other American was more central to the process or deserves more of the credit for its success than Ambassador Barshevsky. I was in Beijing at the time, 97 uh, to 2001, and I remember constantly hearing the name. Uh, Ambassador Barshevsky is now a partner at w Wilma Hale and remains intimately involved in issues of trade with China. Ambassador Barshevsky, Charlene, if I may, welcome to Seneca, and thank you so much for having us here at your offices. It's my great pleasure to be here. We thank you. We are so happy. That we're so delighted to, to have you here. Uh, let me start by asking you about your, your level of exposure to China prior uh, to being being appointed to the office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, was China a country that you had paid all that much mind to prior to this? As a younger person, I was always very interested in international affairs, uh, read a lot, thought a lot about the world. My father, uh, as I was growing up, traveled quite extensively for his job. So I was always bombarded with information about other countries and other cultures, and I found this quite fascinating. With respect to China, 
it was a little bit different in the sense that I thought of it as a very far away, mysterious country. Mm. I and, always and it thought, was for most of your childhood. And, and it was. <laughs> and I always thought of it as a place I would like to go. So a young friend in the neighborhood and I invented a game, and it was called Digging to China. <laughs> we took my mother's soup spoons, which my mother did not at all appreciate, and dug in my father's garden, thinking if we dug far enough, we would hit China. You know, this is the second time that we've asked the, a question similar to this and the second digging to China response. The other was from Sidney Rittenberg, uh, who, of course, you, you, you probably know very well. Uh, I think he also stole implements from his own. Oh, he was sent out to dig to China, like to distract him from, like, getting underfoot in the kitchen, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that was, I think that's right. That was, yeah. that was what you explained. <laughs> that's terrific. Um, Charlene, while you were deputy uh, through most of your tenure as U.S. Trade Representative, one of the annual rituals was that Congress would introduce a bill to disapprove the president's waiver of the Jackson-Vanek provisions so that the U.S. could grant what was then called, rather mysteriously to me, uh, most favored nation trade status to China. Can you remind our listeners, or tell them, because many of them may be too young to remember, what this was all about and how involved was your office in this. The Jackson-Vanek Amendment was actually targeted toward Russia uh, in its in original incarnation, mm. and it was designed to sanction Russia for uh, failing to allow free uh, emigration of, of from Jews, Russia right. of Jews. Right. But its use was expanded, given that the statute was written actually rather broadly. In the case of China and other countries, the United States deemed uh, of concern, uh, the United States used the amendment to allow for the imposition of essentially penalty duties on Chinese imports, treating it not as other nations, but a different kind of nation. The president every year would look at the question, should this law, should this amendment actually be applied in this way with respect to China? Those who favored its use said China, as a human rights abuser, deserved to be treated the way Russia was treated as a human rights abuser. The administration ultimately decided, and I think correctly, that linking trade status with MFN, first of all, did not change China's behavior with respect to human rights in the country. And this was absolutely clear, data-wise and almost every other uh, way. Uh, but second, that making a country poorer was surely not the way toward progress. Right. And that the way toward progress in most countries is by helping to create people who care about things other than bare subsistence. And when they grow richer, they tend to care about things like the environment, like the treatment of other people, they tend to care about fairness and a greater sense of equality. So the view was at that time that we were simply shooting ourselves in the foot by applying the amendment, and therefore each year the president would waive application of the amendment to China even though it continued to apply to certain other countries, including, uh, for example, North Korea. Now, this idea uh, was, of course, very popular during the time. We looked at countries like South Korea. We looked at countries like Malaysia and Singapore. Everyone who had gone through that sort of 
developmental model that we had we posited uh, improved their human rights record, moved toward a more pluralistic and deliberative and participatory society. Uh, in recent years, of course, people have started to question whether that was whether that was right for China. If you were to go back now, knowing what you know now about whether we have in fact moved China more toward uh, respect for human rights and all these other things that people had raised as objections in the few years following Tiananmen, would you have argued differently? Uh, no, because the United States, while it can advocate for human rights, while it can stand as an example of human rights, is in no more position to change the facts on the ground in China as it was in Cuba. Right. which is a tiny nation, 90 miles from our shore, not a nation of 1.2 billion people halfway around the world. Bill Clinton used to say that the future of China is up to the Chinese people and that the way to enhance the choices they might otherwise make is to increase economic growth, increase their own sense of freedom, and greater well-being. I believe that was the right perception at the time, and I continue to believe that that is right, given that the United States uh, is not uh, the guarantor of human rights around the world, but the people in those countries about which we are most concerned are. Could not agree with you more. I could not possibly agree with you more than that. I'd like to hear it. Um, you know, the, the time, though, that you were working on WTO accession, uh, U.S.-China relations were not exactly in their rosiest shape. Uh, you had in, in 95 and 96, of course, the Taiwan Straits crisis, uh, you know, in the lead up to the election and then in, with the election itself, of course. Uh, in a couple of years afterward, of course, you had, uh, well, you had Chinese opposition to U.S. involvement in the Yugoslav civil war. And, and, of course, that culminated in May of 1999 with the embassy bombing, which really changed the course of so many of our lives, my, my, own, my own very much included. What other sorts of difficulties did you encounter and, and how did you overcome these sorts of barriers? I mean, it must have been just very, very frustrating to see this happening while you were you know, trying to move things along. Well, certainly we had some stops and starts, some uh, occasioned by the United States, some occasioned by China. At the end of the day, as with most countries, the U.S. tends to reasonably effectively separate economic engagement from military or foreign policy engagement. Uh, and the U.S. tends to do this around the world uh, so that relationships don't become unidimensional, but instead, particularly with respect to large countries that are dominant in their region as China is, the relationship can proceed in those areas that are advantageous mutually and not be stymied because of concerns in a different area of the relationship. Now, that separation doesn't always hold, obviously, but uh, by and large, with respect to China, it has held in that uh, regard. So when incidents would happen, we would usually take a break. In the case of the mistaken bombing of the Yugoslav, China's Yugoslav embassy, that break was a number of months. Mm. But eventually, both sides come back to the table because both realize that economic engagement is critical and of mutual benefit. I'd just love to hear what it was like inside your head during the months after May of 99. And then how did you try to – did you reach out and, and, and 
uh, you know, use your personal charms and your. Uh, well, how did you? How did you manage this down? It must have been imp- so well, so frustrating. Well, it, it's it's not easy. Uh, of course, after the bombing. Uh, uh, and a cessation, if you will, of relations for a time. Uh, Bill Clinton and Jiang Zemin, Jiang Zemin at that time was president of China, uh, talked to each other. Just simply a sort of howdy-do mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of call. Uh, but slowly they began communicating again. Uh, I certainly provided my advice to the president mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Uh, and things got back on track. But it does take time, and there's a lot of frustration to it. Mm-hmm. It's been suggested that your personal relationship with Zhu Rongji was a major factor in uh, in helping the WTO negotiations through some very difficult times. Can you tell us about Premier Zhu? What was he like as a person and as a counterparty in negotiation? I've met innumerable foreign leaders, presidents of countries, of course, prime ministers, premiers, cabinet secretaries, ministers from all around the world. I have never met a public official as impressive as Juranji. And the reason I say that is, first of all, his intellect. He's a very brilliant person. Second of all, his guts. Mm. He didn't actually have political backing. Jiang Zemin backed him to a point. But Juranji had a vision for the country, had the economic sophistication to posit that further reform on an accelerated and expanded basis, but much in the way as Deng Xiaoping had thought of it, was the only road to raising living standards in China and to bringing people out of poverty on a sustainable basis. He used that perception and his intellect to advocate for his position within his own government. And those sessions, I am sure, were extremely difficult and fraught. And every time there was substantial disagreement with what he thought, his political standing, as it were, eroded. So he was in, actually, a precarious position personally, mm. and yet he persisted in a way that one thinks of when one thinks of a true leader. And so I, I guess you could say he, you know, on the Chinese side, he was the driving force that got China into the WTO. He was the, the person who was really pushing it. Yes, and he encountered every single same one of these these uh, obstacles that we just enumerated, right? He well, had to deal with the embassy bombing too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And of course, I had many counterparts uh, along the way, and who remained involved to the end. Uh, Wu Yi, who's a, also an equally brilliant person, uh, Lung Yong Tu, one of my counterparts, Shi Guangzhong. There were uh, many. Uh, but those were the principal three, apart from uh, Juranji. But it was Juranji with the vision, with the absolute determination, whatever the internal barriers, to see it done. And his perception of what would happen to the Chinese economy was spot on. Absolutely.
So negotiations drag on for an awfully long time. People get tired. People get cranky. Funny things happen. I'm sure you've got a billion great anecdotes. Can you can you share one or gem from the whole sort of negotiation process for us? Well, of course, there, there are a million. And when you ask it, it's hard to conjure one. But but there is one that does come to mind that is was so truly comical. Um, it was getting toward the end uh, of the negotiations. People knew that because uh, both the U.S. and Chinese side were making noises like this was it. And uh, I was in my hotel. There were so many reporters. I mean, a throng of reporters. And my press secretary had walked down to the lobby. Uh, the reporters swamped my press secretary. I came down, saw the reporters, walked right behind them as they were swamping my press secretary in front of them, and simply went over to the restaurant so I could get some food. They never noticed that if they had turned around, the negotiator was standing right there. And I've always thought um, about the lesson it teaches that once in a while we become so focused on a goal, we don't actually stop to think about what else might be around that would be helpful or of greater interest. And that was a perfect example. Is there an example of the actual in the negotiation where you, you there was something where if you had just turned around and noticed or sitting there in plain sight or hiding in plain view, there was a key to turning things to your to your advantage? Not really, other than the last day uh, of the negotiation. I had told my staff the night before, and I had called uh, President Clinton the night before to say if we didn't have a break first thing in the morning, we were done. Uh, and I felt that uh, we were going to hit the point of diminishing returns, uh, and that uh, that was not an advantageous position to be in, and we should just leave. And President Clinton agreed fully. Um, so uh, I had told my staff to pack up and send their suitcases ahead uh, early the following morning, and either there was going to be a deal or we would walk. And it was that simple. And I wasn't in much of a bargaining mood, as you can imagine. So we reached the ministry. Somehow the ministry knew, and I only learned this later, years later, that I had given a directive for my staff to pack up. And uh, we had discussions in the morning at the ministry, and they were turgid, to say the least. And I said, okay, we're done. (laughs) We're out of here. And I stood up. And my whole delegation stood up to leave. And uh, the door opened, and there was uh, an official saying, wait, wait, don't go. Premier Jew is coming here. And he had never before been in the ministry building. So this was quite an event. And Jurunji and I finished uh, the talks. Wow. That very day. That very day. So did you find out how it was they found out that your staff had been given the order to pack uh, I didn't, but I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned in the introduction that there are those who see WTO, who see the WTO agreement as mostly baneful, that along with NAFTA, perhaps it was a triumph really only for the so-called globalizing elites and perhaps for the Chinese themselves. But 
it was the ruin of the rest of us somehow. Um, this theme has been sounded very loudly, especially, you know, uh, during the presidential race, of course. Uh, assuming you would ever deign to bother responding to the populist nationalists, this America first crowd, what would you say in defense of this piece of your legacy, arguably maybe the crowning jewel of your legacy? Well, I would say two things. First off, on trade generally, and then on China. Okay. On the trade side... 95% of the world doesn't live in the United States of America, and 80% of the world's purchasing power resides outside the United States. If the United States is going to grow, the United States must trade with other nations. It is where the wealth is. That's the first point. In that same regard, a third of the growth in our GDP is trade-dependent. Right. So imagine in an environment in which we are finally beginning to emerge from the financial meltdown of 2008-2009, lopping off a third of the growth in our GDP. This would be an exceptionally ugly picture. So with respect to trade in general, one has to acknowledge the dislocations it can cause, Far worse, frankly, from technology than from trade, but they are both problematic to certain more vulnerable industries and to certain segments of our population. And the United States has never, never adequately addressed or funded programs to deal with the problem. Many other nations do and do so successfully, and it's time the United States learned from them how to do it the right way. With respect to China in particular, here is what I would say. Imagine being presented with a country that is a fifth of the world's population. It has the largest standing army. It is a nuclear power. It's a permanent member of the UN Security Council. It has an economic system antithetical to the West. It has exported revolution in the past. And you have a country at the same time that realizes its future is in adopting an economic model used by the West. It has a future in better integrating into a global economy. And you have a premier who is the single most reformist premier, one could imagine, even bolder than Deng Xiaoping. And they knock on your door and say, can we join you? Would anyone say no? Not in their right mind, absolutely. <laughs> that was exactly the situation that we were confronted with when these negotiations began for the Clinton administration in 93. But bear in mind, the talks actually began under George H.W. Bush. So the talks had been going on for almost eight years before Bill Clinton took office. Such was the importance accorded to bringing China into a global system, not because it would ever be the same as the West. It will not be the same as the West. And not because we thought its political system would change. Even if it becomes more pluralistic, it is highly unlikely to be democratic in the way we think of democracy but in a way that makes its economy more compatible with the West, more rules-based 
beyond the terms set by the West. This is an extremely positive outcome where the difficulty has come in is that these reformist instincts, which lasted well into 2005, 2006, even early 2007, began to erode and ultimately stop. That's a good segue into our next question here. Yeah, I, we were looking at a, a recent speech of yours uh, that's online. And if I may paraphrase, you, you basically say that reform and opening up has ground to a halt under Xi Jinping. Um, so what makes you say this specifically? And, and to what do you attribute this? I think Xi Jinping has prioritized control over reform. The reason we say reform has essentially stopped is that if one looks at the third plenum report and at the most recent five-year plan, much of what is articulated, which one would consider a reform agenda, has not been implemented. And there's very little appetite to implement. I think the anti-corruption campaign has figured into this. Bureaucrats do not want to make decisions, don't want to end up on the wrong side of the equation, and so are very reluctant to act. Right. But it isn't just that reform stopped. It's that in its place, China has enacted a spate of measures that are mercantilist in nature and that are zero-sum. If it's mine, it's not yours. If it was yours, it's now going to be mine which is never how global trade uh, has operated. There's typically notions of mutuality. So China has uh, embarked on a, a program to reignite state enterprises, to create champion companies, to provide massive subsidies to create new sectors of its economy that didn't exist before or existed only in nascent form in order to become powerhouse exporters. It has engaged in cyber espionage uh, and a number of other uh, uh, acts, which are discriminatory against U.S. and foreign companies and which have created not mutuality, but a highly imbalanced relationship on the economic side. And this has to be corrected. Would I be correct in saying that what you're, you're talking about a lot is technology policy? A, a lot of, I mean, when you're talking about creating champion companies, when you're talking about um, the purposes of cyber espionage, when you're talking about industrial policy that favors particular sectors, we're talking about a lot of technology companies, talking about the worries they have over the so-called eight guardian warriors yeah. of a, right. I, I would, I would certainly agree, but let me, let me play devil's advocate for just a moment here. Isn't Beijing sort of acting rationally, given the way that Chinese tech companies have been treated, like ZTE and, and Huawei, uh, by by the United States, uh, and given the revelations, especially by Edward Snowden? I mean, they couch a lot of this in the language of security concern, um, don't, don't they? So I think, first of all, this isn't just the tech companies that right. are uh, at risk here. Uh when you see U.S. pharmaceutical companies not have the access they used to have, sure, sure. or U.S. insurance companies, or U.S. financial institutions, or U.S. biotech companies, or U.S. automakers, you step back and you say that there's a fundamental problem that's touching most aspects of the trading 
economy mm-hmm. uh, in China. With respect to China's rationale, uh, it is clear to most observers that China has used Snowden as a convenient excuse for essentially taking industrial policy and highly protectionist measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notion that your handset, which, by the way, are freely sold in the United States, now has to be subjected to security review, including the revealing of source code and other sensitive areas of IP, is preposterous. And yet China would justify this on the basis of Edward Snowden. Uh, They've backed off a bit on this, though, haven't they? They've backed off a bit, but not sufficiently. And backing off doesn't mean progress. So they need to not only back off, they need to move forward. With respect to Chinese investment in the U.S., you mentioned Huawei or ZTE, the U.S. investment regime is infinitely more liberal and more open than China's investment regime. Of course, yes. Uh, With the result that while China might complain about an individual company, Huawei wasn't allowed to do DLX or DLY, U.S. complaints on the investment side in China uh, encompass entire sectors of the Chinese economy. Uh, And the number of sectors as to which inward investment is restrained or prohibited or capped uh, pervades the economy. So in terms of openness to investment in cross-border transactions, I understand that they've complained about Huawei and ZTE, but this is a drop in the bucket relative to the inequitable treatment of foreign investors in China. Yeah, I would have to agree that it's nowhere close to uh, a parity situation. Uh, let me keep the devil's advocate hat on just for one moment here. But what about, uh, do you have any empathy at all to the Chinese uh, assertion that the reason it inhibits some of these IT companies from uh, playing on sort of level playing field in China is because they suspect that this agenda of information freedom, I mean, I'm talking about the American internet companies, actually is a Trojan horse for sort of a a hostile agenda of regime change, ultimately. Well, first of all, the U.S. couldn't change the regime in Cuba. It is most assuredly not capable of changing the regime in China. But when so when I view sees, this, I view this as, as a bit of a red herring. Right. Okay. But what, what, when it, it points to uh, Tahrir Square and it points to Tehran in 2009 after Ahmadinejad, and it says, "Well, look how you appended the name of an American social media property to each of these revolutions," and you know Tahrir Square was the the Facebook revolution and so on. Uh, don't, don't they say, "Aha, there's your proof." Um, Look, I think the U.S. and China are at fundamental odds with respect to notions of the First Amendment, if you will. Sure. And the free flow of information and the free flow of data. Uh, I personally don't think any country has to fear the free flow of information if it's treating its own citizens decently. If it isn't, perhaps other things will end up happening in country that will change the equation, But I don't believe it'll be because of a foreign power or necessarily because of foreign information. It has much more to do with personal discontent than anything else, Mm -hmm. which I also thought was clear from the various color revolutions. 
What do you think China could do now to reinvigorate reform? Um, you know, given what we understand about the constraints that Xi Jinping faces. Um, I mean, if we take him at all at any of his words, he, he does bang on about reform and has been doing for many years now. Um, uh, do you, do you think it's possible and what would it take to bring reform back to the table? I think it's hard to know the answer exactly. Uh, one would hope that uh, once Xi Jinping is inaugurated into a second five-year term next fall, and once you have a new Politburo, the conditions would exist for him to turn his attention to reform and uh, reduce uh, his uh, focus on control. Uh, control, which is to say political within the party, having already been achieved or essentially achieved. It's not clear, however, that he is a reformer at heart. He had been in his provincial positions, and so it was assumed that he would be in the current position. But I think he sees himself as something of a historic figure. Um, and in that regard, it's not clear to me which piece of history he feels he was destined to fulfill. Is it the rejuvenation, not of the Chinese people, but of the party? Is it rejuvenation of the nation in a patriotic or nationalistic sense? Or is it a return of China more fully to the global system from which it has benefited taking on more responsibility and, to some extent, earning greater rights and uh, greater uh, uh, praise. I'm not sure uh, how he views his historic mission. I do believe he feels he has a historic mission. The question to be answered is, which part of history? Well, we've seen faces of the man, uh, the, the face that we saw giving that speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos was, was you know, one face, I think maybe a, a more hopeful face. Uh, what about the role that the United States can play in encouraging uh, the reinvigoration of, 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 of reform and opening? Uh, you said in a recent speech that the U.S. needs to re-engage China in negotiation of agreements that have systemic reach in China, uh, much like the WTO agreement had systemic reach in, in the early years. Uh, so there's, you know, someone else who's been talking about renegotiation trade deals, right? Uh, this isn't perhaps agreement between you and Donald Trump, is it? Oh, dear, no. <laughs> um, these would not be existing agreements to be renegotiated. These would be agreements that are fairly fundamental, which would help to bring about systemic change in China so that the U.S. isn't constantly playing whack-a-mole. Uh, and uh, that would be new and important areas. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you several examples. Uh, investment. There ought to be an investment agreement that provides for a drastic opening of China's market to inward investment and uh, proper treatment of investors. There ought to be an agreement on cyberspace, including on content, which goes back to your point about censorship. Sure and color revolutions and all the rest, but also about data localization, about the free flow of data, so on and so forth. 
There ought to be an agreement between the U.S. and China on services trade, where the Chinese economy is still quite closed or limited, shall we say, and the U.S. economy is quite open. Uh, this is an area that the WTO agreement doesn't adequately address. That is to say, China's WTO obligations are slightly uh, more demanding than that of other countries, but the agreement to which it exceeded in 99 is now an old agreement. This is 2017. So it really is time for the U.S. and China to engage in much more fulsome services talks. Each of these areas would lead to systemic change in China, greater transparency, a new set of rules, and stricter enforcement. And I think this would be an extremely positive step to take, apart from better enforcement of the agreements that we do have with China. Of these things that you enumerated, though, I mean, it seems like services is one area where uh, the interests are pretty well aligned, where the threat isn't particularly high. Uh, China is really trying to raise the contribution of the tertiary sector to GDP. Uh, it's really trying to rebalance. It recognizes it has a real sort of deference to American expertise in the services sector. Services contribute so much of our GDP. Uh, so this may be a useful area to start, yes? I, I mean, would, not as freighted as, say, the, the delocalization or, or free flow of information. You know, um, at the time of the WTO negotiation, Jurongi was very concerned that too rapid access of U.S. services providers would ensure that China never developed its own indigenous services uh, sector because at that time, there were very little services yeah, he had a point trade in China. And I thought he had a very good point at the time. Nonetheless, he did agree to, as I said, stiffer rules than were even in the WTO at the time. But today, China's services sector, its indigenous services sector, is very well established. Yes. There is not a reason in the world why it can't be put on an, a more open footing, much more akin to that in the United States. I totally agree. Charlene, in the, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, China has uh, lent its weight or put forward a string of initiatives that uh, China says are intended to supplement the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, uh, although others fear that they're really intended to supplant or replace those institutions. Many people have been very critical of the U.S. response to this, most notably uh, the o Obama administration's efforts to dissuade American allies from joining the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, or AIIB. What's your take on these Chinese initiatives and on what America's posture to them ought to be? I think the U.S. financial crisis fundamentally altered the equation globally in China's mind. It showed the U.S. as vulnerable. It showed that U.S. management of the global financial system was not without substantial risk. And it provided an opportunity for China to move into the breach as a country with very substantial foreign exchange reserves. And at that time, especially still a fairly strong economy given the global uh, meltdown. And of course, during that period, it was China's economy that helped to continue to power global growth while its major export markets were withering, the US, Europe, and Japan, almost in a synchronous fashion. So 
China stepped into that breach. It was also frustrated by the lack of movement in the IMF and World Bank with respect to voting rights. The world had changed significantly. Italy had greater rights than China in terms of votes, and that made no sense whatsoever. So a combination of the meltdown and China's own frustration led it, I think, to create these various counter-institutions, the AIIB, for example, the Contingent Reserve Arrangement, the mm -hmm. BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, uh, and so on. Well, some do believe it is intended to supplant the World Bank and the IMF, for example. Others believe, and China has said, we mean to supplement these other institutions. I have no idea what the right answer is, but what I do know is that there has been a more fundamental shift globally toward China. This was evident when the U.S. urged some of our allies not to join the AIIB, and they looked at the U.S., and they looked at China, and they said, I'll pick him, meaning China. <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, this was a terrible mistake on the part of the Obama administration, completely unnecessary. Um, but what it tells you is that China is a major force in the global economy and has injected itself in a way that, on the one hand, shows it's stepping up to take more responsibility, but on the other hand, increasing its reach and its scope and its sphere of influence, not only through the AIIB, but through the One Belt, One Road initiative, which again puts China at the center of the greater Eurasian continent. Uh, and that is, for the United States, uh, something to think about and rather sobering. Absolutely. Uh, China has been really wrapping up its outbound investment, uh, even if it is, you know, it's fretting about capital flight, but, but still, I mean, pledging hundreds of billions, if not even amounts in the trillions. Uh, much of that money, of course, wants to come to the U.S. Uh, this raises some issues. Of course, one is that there isn't real reciprocity, that there are a lot of sectors of the Chinese economy that are close to reciprocal American uh, investment, as we as we said. Uh, but there's also a lot of worries about things like you know, Chinese investment in Hollywood studios somehow uh, warranting Cepheus investment because they touch on security. I'm not sure exactly how, but so, so how should the U.S. be responding to, to uh, this, this increasing Chinese interest? I mean, there's a growing chorus of voices here in D.C. at least that are talking about reciprocity. Uh, are you part of that chorus or do you still have misgivings about that approach? I think on the investment side, there should be much greater reciprocity. I don't think one for one. Uh, I don't see any reason to, in effect, draw red lines. But I do think that if Chinese companies can buy it here, our company should be able to buy it there. It's a fairly simple equation, sure. nothing terribly radical about it. Uh, but that's not the case today. Again, I wouldn't apply this as a one-for-one, -one, tit-for-tat rule, but as a general proposition, one can imagine that rights of investment ought to flow in both directions in about the same quantity for about the same purposes. With respect to national security concerns of Chinese investment in the United States, I think the U.S. process for reviewing those investments and handling that is reasonably effective, though I would note that President Obama's science uh, advisory panel at the very end of his administration did raise concerns 
<clears throat> whether our investment process of review was sufficiently robust in all situations. Ambassador Barshevsky, it is we're so grateful that you could make time to talk to us. Uh, it's been a real honor and a real pleasure. I mean, this is, I mean, an incredibly edifying uh, interview. I, I'm I'm so delighted to to hear your your very sober and and, and smart takes on these very important questions. Um, do stick around and make a recommendation with us for our listeners, won't you? Uh, before we get to recommendations, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynic Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news. If you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This helps and it means a lot to us. On to recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you start? What do you have for us? Okay, quickly, I've recommended before uh, China Heritage, a new website by the uh, scholar Jeremy Barme, um, and he is starting to rework some materials from a previous publication he edited called China Heritage Quarterly. Um, and China Heritage Quarterly published a number of issues focused on cities, their history, politics, and culture. Uh, Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, and Hangzhou in the West Lake are featured, and there's more to come Isn't on the Nanjing new website. Nanjing one too, right? A Nanjing one, I think? Uh, yeah, I think there's one on Nanjing yeah, too. Yeah. These are excellent. I mean, they're really, I mean, you can spend a whole afternoon just sort of digging into single cities. Great recommendation, Jeremy. Charlene, what do you have for us? Well, I have a recommendation. Uh, my favorite book in the world is Moby Dick. I did a, an honors paper for it, uh, on it in college. I've read it three times, although I'm about to embark on my fourth reading. It is a book that's universal. It's universal in its meanings, which are many and complex. It's universal in its uh, love of scholarship. When one reads it, one learns a little bit about taxonomy and astronomy and biology, uh, about navigation, about uh, any one of a number of scientific and other disciplines uh, which were uh, developing in a rapid fashion at the time and in which uh, Herman Melville, the author, was very interested and educated himself on. Uh, it's a story of uh, deep meaning, um, and it's a story that, for me, has become yet intriguing again for having read a small booklet uh, on why read Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. And the author uh, made the comment that he had been asked repeatedly to explain the whale. Uh, and what was the symbolic meaning of the whale. Most people thought the whale was a symbol of evil, and yet the whale was white in color, and one doesn't normally associate the color white with evil. Uh, and uh, he chatted for a bit in this particular essay about that, and then said, well, it's just an effing whale. <laughs> That's not quite a quote, but it's my interpretation of what he said. Well, if it's just a whale, if it's only a whale and actually has no meaning whatsoever other than in the mind of the reader and in the mind of Ahab, the principal character, then what is the book actually telling us? So this to my mind, creates a, an opportunity for an entirely new reading of the entire book, 
which I intend to embark on, indeed, after this uh, podcast. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, it's it doesn't it can, it stands fine without all the allegorical layering that we've we've placed on it. I mean, it's just a wonderful, rollicking, great and erudite story. I mean, my God, this it's it's actually I reread it a couple of years ago, and I, what I had forgotten about it is how much comedy there is in it. I mean, how many times I just found myself just laughing. Uh, it's it's marvelous. And it's not just Queequeg. No, 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 no. It's, 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 it's a beautifully of- written book. The vocabulary, the sentence structure, which is very complex but quite readable. Uh, the characters. It is simply a, a masterpiece. And Absolutely. I've always thought of it that way. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to recommend something odd. I'm going to recommend learning or relearning Spanish, uh, which is, I mean, I think there are lots and lots of, of Spanish speaking people, uh, listening to the podcast right now. Uh, where I live and where I work, um, it's, it's, I, I, I am close to a very a wonderful Mexican neighborhood with some terrific restaurants that I've been frequenting, frequenting, uh, probably way too often. Uh, it, it's, it's not such a difficult language. Uh, and, I've been kind of resuscitating the Spanish I had in high school with help of one online resource in particular um, on YouTube. There's this really great guy. I can't remember his name. I mean, his name is Rodrigo, but it's it's called Aprender Idiomas y Cultura General con Rodrigo. And it is free, of course. It's on YouTube. And there's hundreds of, of episodes that take you from hundreds. the very, very, yeah, uh, just from the, you know, the rudiments from the alphabet all the way to, you know, conjugating in, in every imaginable tense and lots of vocabulary uh, i'm having fun with it and you know just an hour a day spent on this is just uh really great it's helping me out so uh thanks again ambassador barshevsky charlene that we we had a well, marvelous time talking to you and what a great recommendation melville moby dick okay jeremy thank you guys good to hang out with you in dc again uh, i will see you again soon the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Thanks to Wilmer Hale for letting us use their offices for this interview. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.